Well, good morning, church. Glad you are here with us to join in as we study the Word. We're going to be in Romans chapter 3, finish up chapter 3, the last few verses, and get to Romans chapter 4, verse 12. Today's message is entitled, Real Faith Works. And as you're turning there in your Bibles, I just wanted to mention, uh, we mentioned earlier today we're keeping the youth uh, in service today, and occasionally we're going to do that. Um, just because our heart is to make sure that our youth are connected to the whole body of the church, not just the youth. And so as you guys, as you youth are in here with us, um, you're here for the Word, and you're here to learn, and we're excited you're with us. And so thanks for joining us today. Well, if we've, you've been with us, you know we're going verse by verse through the book of Romans. And the book of Romans was really a letter that Paul wrote to believers in Rome. And this letter is all about the good news, the salvation that we have in Jesus. And Paul spends the first few chapters of this letter talking about how we are all sinners. In Romans chapter 3, verse 23, he said, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And so whether we had an upbringing that taught us God's word and taught us to fear the Lord and to love him, or we had an upbringing that just taught us how to use his name as a swear word, we're all guilty. It doesn't matter our background. We're all guilty sinners. Paul also taught us to get rid of false hope. We can't go to heaven by simply believing that God exists or even by studying the Bible or trying to be good enough or jumping through spiritual hoops like being baptized or taking communion. The Bible teaches those are all good things, but those things don't save us. Those things don't get us to heaven. You see, the only way to be saved or to go to heaven is to have genuine faith in Jesus. What does that mean? What does it mean to have genuine faith in Jesus? We're going to talk about that today. and We're going to pick up in Romans chapter 3. In verses 27 through 31, we read about justification apart from the law. Paul has just ended a long run-on sentence. In Romans chapter 3, verse 26, it says that he, God, might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. So Paul touches on this idea that we're saved by faith in Jesus, which brings us to that next verse, verse 27. Where is boasting then? It is excluded. By what law? Of works? No, but by the law of faith. Paul says if we are saved by faith, not by works, then there's no room to boast. On the other hand, if we were all saved by being good enough, by doing enough good works to get and earn our way into heaven, then we would have something to boast about. Paul refers to the same truth in Ephesians chapter 2, starting in verse 8, where he says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. And so since salvation is a free gift, we don't earn it. We have nothing to boast about. Jesus told a story in Luke chapter 18. You can read it on the screen there. Luke 18, starting in verse 10, he says, Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood and prayed thus with himself, God, I thank you that I am not like the other men, extortioners and unjust, adulterers or even as this tax collector. 
I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I possess. And the tax collector, standing afar off, he would not so much as raise his eyes to heaven, but he beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. It's interesting that in this little story Jesus tells that both of these men, the Pharisee and the tax collector, they both came to the temple to pray. They both came to God. But the Pharisee came to God in pride and in self-righteousness, boasting in his works, essentially saying, God, I thank you for how amazing and godly I am. It's, it's really incredible. And that was his heart. That was his attitude. And yet the tax collector, he came to God in humility, knowing that he was unworthy. He knew that he deserved punishment, and yet he asked for God's mercy. This example is important because it shows that we can seek after God and yet be rejected by Him. It all depends on our heart. And so you and I, we need to judge our own hearts. You see, when we come to God in prayer, are we more like the Pharisee or more like the tax collector? Do we come boasting in our works Lord, look at all the good things that I've done. And so, as I'm boasting, what I'm really saying is, Lord, you owe me one. Whatever I'm about to ask for, God, you owe it to me because look at all these things that I've done. Or do you come to God in humility, asking for mercy, saying, God, you know all the things that I've done. Don't give me what I deserve. Lord, have mercy on me. Paul in Romans chapter 3 says there's no room for boasting. Because we are not saved by our works, but by God's work on the cross. And so back in Romans 3, look at verse 28 with me. Paul says, Therefore, we conclude that a man is justified by faith apart from the deeds of the law. If you want to take notes today in your note sheet, the back of your bulletin, here's your first fill in the blank. To be justified is when God declares a guilty sinner righteous to be justified is when god declares a guilty sinner to be righteous you see our sin it separates us from god god is the law giver and we are the law breakers god is holy and we are unholy and so to be justified is to be made right with god our fellowship with god that we lost in genesis chapter 3 when adam and eve sinned and sin entered into creation, the fall, we've lost that fellowship. But to be justified is when God puts that fellowship back together because He declares us to be righteous. He restores us to Him. And Paul concludes here in verse 28 that a man is justified by faith apart from the deeds of the law, meaning that we cannot be justified by obeying the law. After all, the whole reason we need to be justified is because we broke the law. And so how silly would it be to say, well, I've broken the law, I've lost my communion with God, I just have to obey the law to get it back. That's where we started. We're we're broken. We We can't do that. And so Paul goes on in verse 29, he says, Or is he the God of the Jews only? Is he not also the God of the Gentiles? Yes, of the Gentiles also. Verse 30, since there is one God who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised 
through faith. You see, there's only one path to righteousness. We're all saved the same way. All people, whether we're Jew or Gentile, circumcised or uncircumcised, we're all saved the same way, through faith. And so Paul says in verse 31, Do we then make void the law through faith? Certainly not. On the contrary, we establish the law. So Paul considers this new argument. He says, if we're saved by faith, not by the law, then does the law become meaningless? Is it made void? And Paul's answer is certainly not. Paul mentioned back in Romans 3 verse 20, he says, therefore, by the deeds of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight. For by the law is the knowledge of sin. You see, the law can't save us because all the law does is reveal the sin in us. Galatians chapter 3, verse 24, Paul says, Therefore the law was our tutor to bring us to Christ, that we might be justified by faith. And so what Paul was saying in Romans 3, verse 20, and what Paul is saying there in Galatians is that the whole purpose of the law is to point us to Jesus. That's your next fill in the blank. The purpose of the law has always been to lead us to Jesus. Remember, the law is kind of like an x-ray, right? An x-ray doesn't fix our problem. It just shows us the problem that's there. And so, too, the law doesn't fix our sin. It just reveals the sin that is there. But some might say, well, since the x-ray doesn't heal me, I don't need one. Just going to skip on that. But if you're anything like me, stubborn, then when you go to the doctor, you're going to need to see that x-ray before you let him put a cast on you. And you're going to need to see that x-ray before you're going to obey his commands to say, all right, you're on light duty, take it easy, because you've got a broken bone, it needs to heal. You see, the x-ray shows us our need for the doctor and his orders. And so too, the law shows us our need for Jesus and the reason why we need to obey his orders. And so, when we listen to the doctor and we take that cast and we, you know, we shower like this with our cast outside of the shower and we do all that crazy stuff, it's because we recognize our need. We're establishing the purpose of that x-ray. Okay, I believe that it was true. Well, when we put our faith in Jesus, we're establishing or proving the law and saying, you know what, the law is true. I am guilty. The law is right. I am a sinner. That's why I need Jesus. And so Paul says, we're saved through faith, not by the law. But it doesn't mean we throw out the law. In fact, the law is what points us to Jesus. And so now, in Romans chapter 4, in verses 1 through 8, we read about Abraham and David. Paul says, What then shall we say that Abraham our father has found according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him for righteousness. Now, I want to take a step back here. Make sure we're all on the same page. Make sure we understand who Abraham is. And so at the beginning of your Bibles, we have the book of Genesis. Genesis chapters 1 and 2, they tell us how God created everything, how everything was very good. Genesis chapter 3 tells us how we sinned and we messed everything up. 
Genesis chapter 6 tells the story of Noah and the worldwide flood. And then as you move along a little further in Genesis, you get to chapter 12, where we begin to read the story of Abraham. And in Genesis chapter 12, verse 1, it says, Now the Lord had said to Abram, Get out of your country, from your family and from your father's house, to a land that I will show you. And Abraham, or Abram, obeyed. God would later change Abram's name to Abraham. At this point, Abraham was about 75 years old. He and his wife had never been able to have children. And yet, several years after this command in Genesis 12, God promised Abraham a son. In Genesis chapter 15, starting in verse 5, it says, Then he, notice the capital he, that's God, brought him, Abraham, outside and said, Look now toward heaven and count all the stars if you are able to number them. And God said to Abraham, So shall your descendants be. And Abraham believed in the Lord, and he accounted it to him for righteousness. Abraham by now is in his 80s. And God promised, Abraham, you're not only going to have a son, but that son is going to give you so many descendants that there's going to be too many to count. Just like there's too many stars to count. And Abraham believed God. He believed that God would do what he promised. And this is biblical faith. Your next fill in the blank. This is biblical faith. Trusting that God will do what he said. Trusting that God will do what he said. Notice Abraham didn't just say, well, I know by faith I'm going to have a son one day. No, he only believed it because God said it. See, his faith was in God's word, not in his declaration. And so this is what Paul is referring to in Romans chapter 4. Let's reread starting in verse 1. Romans 4, verse 1. It says, What then shall we say that Abraham our father has found according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified or made righteous by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does Scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was accounted to him for righteousness. Because Abraham believed that God would give him a son, even though he was pretty old, it says God looked at Abraham from that moment and said, you're no longer just a guilty sinner. Now you're a guilty sinner that I've stamped as righteous. I've justified you. I've made him holy. You see, Abraham didn't earn this righteousness by works. He didn't accomplish it by obeying the law. In fact, Abraham lived years before the coming of the law. Moses and the Ten Commandments, that's further down the timeline. We're only in Genesis chapter 12 and 15 here. And so this is Paul's point. Abraham, the father of our faith, Abraham was saved or justified by faith. And so verse 4, now to him who works, the wages are not counted as grace, but as debt. You see, when you go to work and you get your paycheck, you don't say, oh, thank you, what a nice gift. No, you say, give me that, that's mine, I earned that, right? I worked hard for that paycheck. That's not grace. You've earned it, that's works. You see, grace is when you don't show up for work, you don't call in, you get a paycheck anyway, and they give you a bonus. And you're like, I'll take three of those jobs, right? That sounds great. 
But that's what grace is. Grace is getting something that we don't deserve. And so, this is Paul's point. You see, we don't earn salvation by works. We receive salvation by grace. It's a free gift. We have to receive it, but we don't earn it. And so, Paul continues in verse 5. But to him who does not work, but believes on him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is accounted for righteousness. Now, let me ask you, what does it mean to have biblical faith? Don't look at me, look at your note sheet, right? What does it mean to have biblical faith? It's to trust God to do what he said. Trust that God will do what he promised. And God said that he would justify or he would make us righteous, the ungodly, if we would believe in him. We're trusting that God will do that, that he will take us into heaven, even though we are sinners. And what does it mean to be justified? It means to be declared righteous. It means that that fellowship with God that was broken has been restored. And so the whole idea is that though we're unrighteous, though that we are unholy, we're ungodly, if we trust in God's promise to save us, God treats us as if we lived righteously, as if we lived godly, as if we lived perfect lives. And Paul shows that this was true not just for New Testament believers, not just for after Jesus came, but true for even Abraham way back in Genesis. And Paul says it was also true for David. Look at verse 6. Verse 6 says, Just as David also describes the blessedness of the man to whom God imputes righteousness apart from works, blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord shall not impute sin. Now, to impute means to credit to our account. And so David says, they are blessed whom God credits with righteousness instead of with sin. Now let's consider the man that David was. David, he killed Goliath because he trusted in God's power rather than his own. Trusting in God's strength, not his own. David loved his enemy. If you remember the story, King Saul, he went nuts. And King Saul, in trying to protect his throne, he tried to murder David. Again, then again, then again. And David, multiple times, spared his king's life. Even though he could have taken him out. And everybody would have said, Oh, thanks David, that guy was a nut job. No, David didn't do it. Because David said, The Lord's going to make me king. I don't need to make myself king. And so David loved his enemy. David worshipped the Lord. And he wrote many of the Psalms in the Bible writing worship songs to God. And yet, David also gave in to sexual lust. When David broke God's command and he took multiple wives for himself. But David wasn't satisfied with those multiple wives, since lust is never satisfied. And so he committed adultery with Bathsheba. Then he tried to cover up his sin with lies. And when that plan failed, he murdered Bathsheba's husband, Uriah. And so we're looking at a couple highlights and lowlights of David. Now imagine if David went to the Lord and David said, God, I know I've, I've messed up. I've done some bad things, but I've done a lot of good things. Remember Goliath? I mean, that was pretty awesome. 
and he's trying to come to God in his own righteousness, in his own works. It doesn't work that way. God would say, no, no, I don't let you in for the good. I don't let you in because of the bad. You can't come to me in your works. David didn't come to God seeking fair treatment. David didn't come to God asking for justice, but David came to God seeking mercy. David wrote in Psalm 51, verse 1, he said, Have mercy upon me, O God, according to your loving kindness, according to the multitude of your tender mercies. Blot out my transgressions. You see, David knew he deserved judgment. And so he prayed, God, don't give me the judgment that I deserve, but according to your goodness and according to your grace. Later in the same psalm, David prayed in verse 14, Deliver me from the guilt of bloodshed, O God, the God of my salvation, and my tongue shall sing aloud of your righteousness. Notice that David doesn't say, I'm going to sing of my righteousness. No, he knew, I don't, I don't have any righteousness. I have unrighteousness. But Lord, deliver me from the guilt of my sin. And God, I will sing of your righteousness. Because God is righteous, because he is a good judge, God cannot simply ignore David's sin. He can't simply overlook it. We can't just take this list and let the bad side just fade into black and say, okay, I'm glad we all forgot about those things. Now we can move on. God can't do that. Because God's a good judge. He won't let sin go unpunished. But those sins were paid in full when Jesus went to the cross. Jesus paid for those sins. Last week, Paul declared that God sent Jesus as payment on the cross. In Romans chapter 3, starting in verse 25, God sent Jesus to pay for our sin on the cross to demonstrate His righteousness. Because in His forbearance, God had passed over the sins that were previously committed to demonstrate at the present time His righteousness, that He might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. And so the sins, past, present, and future, of all of us have been paid in full on the cross. So that God can say, I'm just, because I will not let sin go unpunished. But God can also say, I'm the justifier, because I went to the cross to bear those sins on my own shoulders. So that anybody who trusts in Him has their sins stamped paid in full. You've been made righteous. You've been justified, brought back together with the Lord. And so Paul has given us two examples in the Old Testament showing us that even before Jesus came, people like Abraham and like David, people were saved by faith. Even before Jesus came, even in the Old Testament, they were saved by faith, not by fulfilling the law, not by good works. Now let's move on to verses 9 through 12, where we read about true children of Abraham. Paul says, does this blessedness then come upon the circumcised only or upon the uncircumcised also? The blessedness Paul talks about is the forgiveness of our sin, right? The being justified. He says, is this only for the Jews, the circumcised, or is it for everybody? Paul continues in verse 9, for we say that faith was accounted to Abraham for righteousness. 
how then was it accounted? While he was circumcised or uncircumcised? Not while circumcised, but while uncircumcised. So Paul is saying, okay, Abraham's the father of our faith, right? In fact, he's called the father of faith. Was Abraham made righteous, considered righteous by God, after he was circumcised and obeyed that command that God gave him? Or was it before? And Paul says, it was before. God said, Abraham, I'm going to give you a son. And Abraham said, I'm really old, but I believe you. And God says, you're righteous. And then later on, God commands Abraham to be circumcised. An external sign just indicating that Abraham belonged to God. And this was important. This is important for two reasons. First of all, the fact that Abraham was considered righteous before he was circumcised adds to the evidence that we are all saved by faith, not by works. It's important also because it shows that salvation is available to all people, whether they're a Jew or not, whether they're circumcised or not. It doesn't matter. What matters is, do we have faith like Abraham? Verse 11 And he, Abraham, received the sign of circumcision, a seal of the righteousness of the faith which he had while still uncircumcised, that he might be the father of all those who believe, though they are uncircumcised, that righteousness might be imputed to them also. And so because Abraham was considered righteous before he was circumcised, Abraham is our spiritual father, whether or not we're a Jew whether or not we're a Gentile. If we have faith like Abraham, then he's considered our spiritual father. Look at verse 12. And Abraham is the father of circumcision, the father of the Jews, to those who not only are born a Jew and get circumcised, but also who walk in the steps of faith which our father Abraham had while still uncircumcised. Try to put yourself in the shoes of a Jew. Back in Paul's day, circumcision was extremely important. So important that when Paul went on one of his missionary trips, one of the guys that was with him, that was half Jewish, he had him circumcised just so that the Jews they were going to minister to would listen to him. And they would let him come into their dinner parties. Now, Paul knew, you're, you're already saved, but I want you to get circumcised so that you can reach these Jews, because to them it's a really, 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 really big deal. And yet here, Paul is saying to them, Abraham is your father if you have faith like Abraham. If you're circumcised, but don't have faith like Abraham, then he's not your father. That's the mic drop for Paul. Because to the Jews, they would say, no, 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 I was born a Jew. And the eighth day, I was circumcised. This is a big deal. This is who I am. And Paul says, that's not who you are. You're not a true son of Abraham unless you have faith like Abraham. And so what he's trying to say, your next fill in the blank, Paul says that true children of Abraham are not determined by family, but by faith. The true children of Abraham are not determined by family, but by faith. Paul repeats this idea in Galatians chapter 3, starting in verse 7. He says, therefore, know that only those who are of faith are sons of Abraham. And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, 
preached the gospel to Abraham beforehand, saying, In you all the nations shall be blessed. It's amazing that Paul says here, God preached the gospel to Abraham way back in Genesis chapter 12 when he said in verse 3, And in you, Abraham, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. How's that going to happen? Well, number one, it's because Jesus came descending through Abraham. And Jesus gives us salvation to all the nations. And number two, blessed because Jesus offers this salvation to all who have faith like Abraham. Now, I want to say on a quick side note here, Paul is not saying that we, the church, who believe in Jesus, are the new Israel. And we replace all of the promises God gave to Israel that are still yet future. That's not what he's saying. But he is saying that we who have faith like Abraham are the true sons of Abraham. Now, back in Romans chapter 4, verse 11, we already read that verse, and in it, Paul describes circumcision as a seal. I said it already, but it's an external sign meant to indicate an internal faith. If somebody had that external sign of circumcision, but they lacked the internal faith, well, then the sign is meaningless, right? They're still in their sin and they're still guilty. For Christians today, one of our external signs is baptism. This is my beautiful daughter. I got to baptize this last summer. And I, as we, we take her down under the water and bring her back up, it's symbolizing that we as a believer are going under the water, symbolizing that we have died with Christ and then being brought back up, symbolizing that we have been brought into new life, resurrected with Jesus. Because Jesus died on the cross for our sin, and he rose again from the dead to give us eternal life. Now, God commands Christians to be baptized. But it's an external sign that indicates our internal faith. We are not saved because we were baptized, anymore was Abraham made justified because he got circumcised. No, 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 no. We were already righteous. The moment we believed, the moment my daughter put her faith in Jesus as her Lord and her Savior, she's justified. She's righteous because of God's work. And her getting baptized is just a public profession of that faith, an external sign. And so, God does command it. If you're a Christian and you've not yet been baptized, let us know. We'd be happy to baptize you and celebrate what God is doing in your life. But getting baptized is not what makes us, okay, whew, now I get to go to heaven. No, no. Faith, not works. Believing in Jesus, that's what gets us into heaven. Now, rather than continue on in Romans 4 today, we need to answer an important question. We're going to save the rest of this chapter for next week. That important question is, what is real faith? What is real faith? James chapter 2, starting at verse 18, James says, But someone will say, You have faith, and I have works. Show me your faith without your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that there is one God. You do well. Even the demons believe and tremble. But do you want to know, O foolish man, that faith without works is dead? So, we read earlier, Paul 
in Romans making it clear that we're not saved by works, we're saved by faith. And yet here, James in chapter 2, he makes it clear that faith without works is dead. And so let's keep reading to see what he means. In James chapter 2, verse 21, he says, Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered Isaac his son on the altar? Remember how God promised Abraham a son, right? Well, a few years later, that promise was fulfilled. Even in his old age, in his wife's old age, Abraham and Sarah, they got pregnant and they had a son. All because Abraham believed God's promise. He trusted God would do what he said. And yet, a few chapters later, he's already been made righteous. God already said, because you believe, you are righteous. Now, a few chapters later in Genesis chapter 22, they have their son, Isaac. And in verse 1, it says, Now it came to pass after these things that God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, Here I am. Then God said, Take now your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah, and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. This is crazy, right? Abraham finally has a son, and God says, Okay, you know that son? the one who you're going to have too many descendants to count from? Well, I know that he doesn't have any sons yet. You're not a grandpa, but I want you to take that son and I want you to go to this mountain. I want you to build an altar. I want you to start a fire. And I want you to put your son on that fire. I want you to kill your son and burn his body as a sacrifice. That's crazy. And what's even crazier is Abraham obeyed. He went, he took Isaac to the mountain, he built the altar, and at the last moment as his hand was raised with a knife to slay his son, in verses 11 and 12 of Genesis chapter 22, it says, But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And so Abraham said, Here I am. And God said, Do not lay your hand on the lad or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God. Since you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. Abraham didn't know or understand why God was telling him to do this. God, this is, this is the son we've been waiting for, for like a hundred years. This is the son that you're supposed to fulfill your promise through. And yet if I kill him, I'm pretty sure he's not going to get married one day and have some babies. But God, I'm going to do what you said. Because I know that God, you said... Through Isaac, you're going to make me into a great nation. And all the families of the earth will be blessed. It doesn't make sense. But God, you said you're going to do it. So even if you have to bring my son back from the dead, resurrect him to fulfill your promise, God, I know that you will fulfill your word. That's the faith that Abraham had. That's the faith that proved Abraham genuinely trusted God was going to do what he promised to do. Now, just to throw in a new twist in that story, what's crazy is when God says, now I know that you love me even more than your son. Does God know everything? Sure. So it wasn't like God was like, oh, okay, now I know. But he knew it the whole time, but he still made Abraham go through it all. Why? Because those actions, they glorified God. They brought glory to God. 
And it showed Abraham that he did have the faith that he said he had. And so Abraham's works, his obedience, proved that his faith was real. Here's your next fill in the blank. Real faith trusts God enough to obey his commands. Real faith trusts God enough to obey his commands. In other words, real faith works or has works. Now, if Abraham said, God, I believe that you can give me a son, even though I'm old, and I believe that you can make him into a many nations, but what you're asking me to do, I don't like it. I don't agree with it. Then that would show that he didn't have genuine faith. His words were faithful, but his actions were unfaithful. And that's what Paul's trying to talk about. Now, please hear me on this. No matter how many times somebody cuts you off on the freeway, God is not going to tell you to kill them. Okay? God will not tell you to murder them. That was a unique and extreme example with Abraham. And you'll notice that God didn't let Abraham go through with it. He stopped him short. I said two weeks ago that if your life hasn't changed, you're probably not saved. If you say you have faith in Jesus and your life has not changed, then you're probably not saved. And that's what we're talking about here. It's the same idea. If you say you have faith in God, that you trust God will fulfill His promises, and yet your life doesn't reflect that belief, then you're only fooling yourself. You see, if you have real faith in Jesus, then that faith should be reflected in how you treat others, in how you handle your sexuality, in how you respond to God's Word. You see, James declared that faith without works is dead. Faith without works is dead. If we say we have faith, but we don't have anything to show for it, our faith is dead. But on the other hand, our obedience to God's word, when we actually do what God tells us to, we listen to his word and we say, all right, God, I'd rather do it my way, but I'm going to do it your way. That obedience is what shows our faith is real. So, I would also venture to say, turning that last fill in the blank around, works without faith is also dead. Works without faith is also dead. You see, we can go through the motions. We can go to church. We can even read our Bible. We can even get baptized. Going through those works and those motions. But if those good things are done without trusting God, without the faith in the first place, then the works are useless. And so we have this great paradox. We are saved by faith, not by works. And yet, true faith will result in works. Or if you prefer, true faith will bear good fruit. Remember when Jesus was crucified. And on either side of Him were two criminals crucified next to Him. We read in Luke chapter 23, starting in verse 39. It says, Then one of the criminals who was hanged who were hanged, blasphemed Jesus, saying, If you are the Christ, save yourself and us. But the other, answering, rebuked him, saying, Do you not even fear God, seeing you are under the same condemnation? And we indeed justly, 
For we receive the due reward of our deeds. But this man, Jesus, has done nothing wrong. Then he said to Jesus, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus said to him, Assuredly, I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. One criminal had no faith. No faith. Therefore, his fruit was bad. He mocked Jesus. While he's literally hanging there dying on a cross, he used his last breaths to mock Jesus next to him. That's bad fruit. Now, the other criminal, he had faith, and therefore his fruit was good. He rebuked the first criminal. He then called Jesus Lord, and then he asked Jesus to remember him. Those actions all prove that his faith was genuine. I'll close with this. As Abraham led Isaac, that son of promise, led Isaac up the mountain to the sacrifice. We read in Genesis 22 in verse 7, But Isaac spoke to Abraham his father. By the way, Isaac wasn't like a little baby. He wasn't like a little boy. But Isaac was the one carrying the wood for his old man. So Isaac was a man at this time. Isaac says to Abraham his father and says, My father. And Abraham says, here I am, my son. Then he said, look, we have the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for a burnt offering? Abraham said, my son, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering. And so the two of them went together. Isaac realizes, dad, we're missing something here. When we build an altar and a sacrifice to the Lord, we have a sacrifice. We don't have a lamb. And Abraham says, the Lord will provide a lamb. Let's go. And so later on in verse 13, right after God stopped Abraham from killing Isaac and making him the sacrifice, it says, Then Abraham lifted his eyes and looked, and there behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by its horns. And so Abraham went and he took the ram and they offered the ram. They killed and offered, burned the, the ram as a burnt offering instead of his son. And so God provided a substitute, a ram. But it wasn't the lamb that Abraham said God would provide. That lamb didn't come for about 2,000 years until Jesus came. And as Jesus came, John the Baptist looked out and saw Jesus, saw Jesus the Christ, the Messiah, the Savior of the world. And John the Baptist in John chapter 1, verse 29 said, The next day, John saw Jesus coming toward him, and he said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Jesus is that Lamb. The Lamb from Genesis chapter 22 that would come and be the sacrifice, be the substitute. You see, God stopped Abraham short from sacrificing his son Isaac on the altar. But God did not stop himself from sacrificing his one and only son Jesus, on the cross for us. That was the substitute payment for our sin. So that whoever trusts in Jesus will not go to hell. You will not spend eternity still separated from God because you're trusting that Jesus' payment on the cross has covered your sin, paid for your sin in full. And those of us who have real faith, genuine faith, 
in Jesus, we're going to bear good fruit. And we're going to prove that our faith is perfect or is complete by the way that we live as we seek to obey God rather than our flesh. Let's pray. God, we thank you that we are saved by faith and not by works. God, we thank you that you loved us enough that though we were still sinners, you came and you lived that perfect life that we could not. And you died on the cross to pay for our sins in full. Lord, we thank you that this gift of salvation is given to the whole world, to anyone and everyone. And God, all we need to do is receive that gift of salvation by faith. To believe that you're going to do what you promised to do. And God, if there's anybody here today, or anybody listening online today, and they have been trying to earn their way of salvation, they've been trying to go through works, or maybe they're not even trying because they know they've already broken the law. They can't attain salvation and perfection. God, I pray today they would simply look to you as their Lord and their Savior and say, God, I'm guilty. I've broken your law. God, have mercy on me, a sinner. God, I trust that you're going to take me to heaven when I die, not because I was good enough, but because you were good on my behalf and because you paid for my sin on that cross. Lord, for those of us who have just prayed that prayer or who've already made that decision, we're already Christians, God, would you fill us afresh with your Holy Spirit? God, would you give us the strength that we need so that we can walk by faith, so that we can walk in obedience, so that we can look at your word and even those times where your word says something that maybe we don't like, maybe we don't agree with, maybe we'd rather delete that part of Scripture. God, give us the faith that we need to say, Lord, not my will be done, but yours be done. God, I'm trusting that I'm going to be with you in heaven for all eternity one day. And so this life, it's temporary. It's short. So God, help me to live this life for you, proving that my faith is genuine and that my faith is real. And God, may you be glorified as we, your church, choose to obey your word. God, may you be glorified in that. God, we thank you for your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's stand and worship the Lord together. Amazing. Faultless will stand before the throne. That's to be justified. Not by works, but only by faith. If you made a decision today to put your faith in Jesus, let us know. We would love to congratulate you and pray with you in that. If there's other things going on in your life that we can pray for you about, please come forward. We'd love to pray with you. Questions. We'd love to answer any questions. Otherwise, have a great week. 
Be thankful that we're saved by grace, by faith, not by works. And on your way out, say hi to somebody else. Have a great day. Thanks for coming. God bless.